storytelling plays a fundamental role in creating change. Whether it's the stories we tell about ourselves, about our businesses, or the stories we share to inspire revolutions, an engaging narrative can literally change the world. Join me, Nathan Scalaro, and some very special guests for Storytelling for Change, a four-week deep dive online to hone your skills and master the art of storytelling to create impact. Find out more and sign up at smallgiantsacademy.com.au. If you want to understand the health of any creature, if you're studying an elephant, would you study elephant in the zoo or would you study it out there in nature where they live? And so when it comes to human beings, it's the same thing. Who didn't have a sense of competing and having to grasp to ourselves in competition, we evolved as collaborative, communal creatures whose sense of meaning wasn't derived from anything other than what we could bring to the communal life. Hello, it's Kirsty here. A few weeks ago, I was fortunate to have a great conversation with Dr. Gabor Mate. Dr. Mate investigates human development through the lens of science and compassion, and he melds a human centric approach to care through this appreciation of the impact that stress and emotional distress can have on our bodies. Gabor Mate's latest book is The Myth of Normal. Isn't it reassuring to know that there's just no such thing as normal? Frustratingly, the tech really failed us during this interview, and a lot of gold was lost because the internet connection just didn't work well enough. But we've saved what we could so that we can share it with you, and I really hope you enjoy the conversation. Terrific. I wonder what you've been talking about these last five weeks. Well, this, that, and the other. <laughs> well, it's lovely to meet you. I'm very, very grateful for your time. I wanted to thank you for your book. I loved mm. reading that. And The okay. Myth of Normal, which has just come out in Australia, revisits some of the territory that you've covered in your previous books. I really enjoyed your interview with Joe Rogan. And you said to him that this was the book that you had to write and you're super proud of this achievement. I'm curious yeah. to know what's distilled in you since the writing of your other books about ADHD and addiction, stress, raising children to lead to this one. Well, uh, two things. One is that everything is one, which is an ancient bit of wisdom that leads to Buddha and before then. But I also want to show how that's true in the context of modern society. In order to understand all these conditions that I've been writing about, you understand the toxicity of this culture, where everything else affecting everything else, we're getting the results that we're getting. Finally, since I wrote these other books, there's been so much more research illuminating the themes that I've covered before that I just wanted to bring it up to date. But really, it was this desire to bring it all together. And it is beautifully brought together. I'm really curious yeah. about this toxic culture that humans have uniquely, mm. as you described, created for ourselves. And I feel like there's this yeah. collective intuiting of that. We all know that. Nobody really knows what to do about it. Could you describe for us this toxic culture? You know, what do you see in our environment and in our interpersonal relationships and professionally? There's no aspect of our lives that it doesn't touch. Well, I mean, there's some obvious things, but it goes beyond the obvious. Knowing what I know about Australia, there's the way that Trudeau with the indigenous population and the trauma that 
was imposed on the indigenous population whose effects are still extant today in a number of indigenous people being jailed and dying in jails for that matter. That's a clear sign of toxicity. It also affects the perpetrators because they become removed from their own humanity. And it affects everybody because our passivity in the face of all that. We would never allow a dog to be tortured in front of our eyes. But as a society, as individuals, we put up with so much. I'm not here to pick on Australia particularly, but since I'm talking to an Australian reporter, the way the immigrants are being handled. Yeah, appalling. Who would do that? Mm. No individual immigrant would do that, but as a culture, we do it. And we go to sleep perfectly well. That to me is a sign of a toxic culture. No, more closer to home, the way we raise children. It turns out that these Aboriginal people that we denigrate and suppress, they knew how to parent much better than we do. Parents were always around the kids. Kids, by and large, were not hit. They were picked up when they cried. They had a whole lot of nurturing adults around. In today's culture, parents live very isolated, nucleated, atomized lives. They often don't see their kids the whole day. And they're taught by parenting experts to ignore their parenting instincts. For example, don't pick up the baby when they're crying. Now you tell a mother gorilla not to pick up the baby when they're crying. But human beings will actually allow their instincts to be overridden by advice that's given to them by people that don't know what the heck they're talking about, who are totally disconnected from their hearts. It's not because parents don't love their kids or they don't do their best, but actually we're denatured. We're so disconnected from our parenting instinct. Just take that simple example of letting a baby cry and not pick them up. Well, that's a toxicity. So one of the things in this book is the loss of authenticity, where we get disconnected from ourselves. When we get disconnected from ourselves because of the way we were raised, because of these parenting practices, because of traumas, whatever happens, we no longer live authentic lives. And so I do this regularly. I was speaking to a thousand people here in London just the other night. And I said, please raise your hand if you ever had the experience of having a strong gut feeling about something and ignoring it and then being sorry afterwards. Well, I mean, everybody raises their hand. No, that's a sign of trauma. Because what creature in nature survives ignoring their gut feelings? So that authenticity, that being connected to your body and your feelings, that's essential for survival. But so many of us have given that up. Why? Because we live in a false culture that says if you want to be accepted, you better give up your authentic self. And then we lose our inner GPS as to who to be and how to be in life. So the essential toxicity of the culture is it inculcates and rewards loss of authenticity. Thank you. You know, I feel very attuned to this dichotomy of meaning in our culture at the moment. We've just moved as a family. I have two children, they're nine and 11, and we moved back to the city to a small apartment from we were living on a farm of 48 acres in the middle of nowhere in the mountains and for nearly two years. And that's amazing for your kids. It's been wonderful and everybody's in shock. And, you know, I see this this materialism, the frenetic busyness and the dullness behind the eyes, you know, that Robert Persig described in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It's a really jarring thing. And I'm interested to know, you know, you've been practice medicine for a long time and you've been alive for longer than I have. And I'm interested to know what's changed in society that you've noticed in your lifetime. 
two triggers. One of them is the increasing atomization of people's lives. It's one thing to be alone out there in nature on a 40-acre farm connected to the land and being with your kids. Another to be sitting in a small apartment in a city, you know, not connected to tribe or community or family, extended family. And so there's really been a loss of neighborhood, a loss of community, a loss of extended family, which is devastating for human beings. And it's been happening since, pretty much since the Second World War. The other big change, of course, has been the digitalization of life almost overnight. It's like we went to sleep one morning, the next morning we woke up to a totally different world. It's all about the image that we present on digital media. We talk about Facebook. Even I look at the word Facebook. What does it mean? We're presenting a face to the world, an artificial face. And then we have friends. What the heck does that mean? Real friends know you. They know your faults. They know your virtues. They accept you for who you are, not for who you present to them. It's all about presentation. So there's these influencers. It's all about image. It's nothing to do with anything real. So it become a very superficial world. And not to mention just the digitalization of life where so many people, they wake up in the morning and the first thing they do is they check their emails. And how many times do I carry this thing in my pocket and I'm compulsively just checking it? I mean, if I was waiting for a carrier pigeon, I wouldn't be doing that all the time. Scanning the skies, where's that pigeon already, you know? But that induces a certain state of mind. And these gadgets are designed to make you addicted. I mean, I say they're designed for it. Not only do they make you addicted, they're designed to make you addicted. So we live in this artificially digitalized and hyper-communicative world where the communication is about nothing that's important. So the loss of community and the technologization of life, digitalization of communication, and it's almost like it happened overnight. And it's impacted our children so terribly. I see that. And I try really hard to limit it with my kids. It was Gordon Neufeld <clears throat> in the book that you wrote with him on children yeah. which I absolutely love. And so much of that resonated for lots of different reasons. Yeah. But he said raising a child is bringing that child to his or her full potential as a human being. And then Ken Robinson described children's education as educating them from the neck up. And I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on education. You know, how should we prepare these young people for the world that we make? Sure. So in one of the chapters, and I won't look for it now, there's a quote from a study from Harvard University where they talk about oh, human brain development. They point out that brain development begins in the womb and continues on to adulthood. And the most important influence on the development of the brain circuits is the quality of parent-child interactions, particularly in the early years. Now, if we understand that brain development begins in utero and continues on to adulthood, then what's the role of any educational or nurturing setting, whether the home or the school? It's not to teach kids facts. It's not to cram them full of the data. It's to help them develop into full human beings, emotionally. Now, the right side of the brain develops before the left side. The right side is the holistic, intuitive, relational side of the brain. But if the emotional side of the brain doesn't develop right, then it becomes unmoored, and then it can create gas chambers, because it's not connected to the heart or to the gut. Now, if that's true, which it is, that the brain develops 
from in utero to adulthood in interaction with the, with the adult environment, the most important job of the schools is not to cram the kids full of facts. The most important job of the schools is to promote the healthy emotional development of children. Because children who are in touch with their emotions and who are still full of spontaneity and play and curiosity, they'll learn anything very easily. In fact, they'll be eager to do so. But children who are emotionally dulled and alienated and not feeling safe, they won't learn so well. Or what they will learn is to conform rather than to be themselves. So ideally, the job of the schools is to complete the job that begins at home, which is to promote healthy human development. Now, most teachers, any more than most doctors, don't get a single lecture on human development and on healthy human interactions or on healthy emotional development. These are the really important questions. So the job of nature, the, the intention of nature, is the development of a human being who is connected to themselves, knows their own mind and their heart, and they can be in respectful social relations with other people. That should be the job of the schools. The facts, the data, they're secondary because they're easily acquired by anybody who's naturally curious and naturally intent on gaining some mastery. We're putting the emphasis completely on the wrong dynamic here by trying to make the schools into knowledge factories. <laughs> it's a good term for it, knowledge factories. Yeah, I love that insight. Thank you. You wrote very honestly in The Myth of Normal about your own journey to realization as a parent. And I'm interested to know when and how did that yeah. penny drop for you about how your addictive behaviors were influencing your children's lives? And what did you do to redress that balance? That knowledge came to me over time because my kids were suffering. That quest began in my 40s. That's when I began to seek therapy. That's when I began to read about child development and trauma and so on. So it wasn't, again, an overnight realization. It was more like a, a long-term process. Mm. And as you know, I wrote this book with my son, Daniel, who's now 47. And with him, we've had our share of difficulty working on our relationship. In fact, we're doing another book together. Oh, great. It's Hello. Oh, yeah, it's called Hello Again. But it's been a process. It's an ongoing process. I mean, that's a lot of what you write about, though, isn't it? The process of becoming. So, yeah, yeah. That's good. When and how was it clear to you that this was the book that you were working towards that you had to write? Oh, it's been with me for almost since I finished my last book, In the Realm of Hungry Worlds, which was published 13 years ago now. So, this has been with me for a good 10, 11 years. When I look back, I collected 25,000 articles as research material <laughs> among other things and i filed them all and when i look at the earliest date of when i collected some of these scientific studies and papers so that was at least 11 years ago wow what do you see as the essential building blocks of life that we have some management of or influence over that's not an arbitrary question it has to do with how did we evolve as human beings if you want to understand the health of any creature if you're studying an elephant, if you want to understand the, the nature of the elephant, would you study the elephant in the zoo or would you study it out there in nature where they live, you know? And so when it comes to human beings, it's the same thing. And we developed as communal, collaborative creatures 
who didn't have a sense of competing and having to grasp to ourselves in competition, we evolved as collaborative, communal creatures whose sense of meaning wasn't derived from anything other than what we could bring to the communal life. And still, if you ask people now, when do you feel more at ease? When is your body more at rest? When you have done something selfish and greedy and grasping, or when you've been open-hearted and kind and generous. And most people say, I feel much better in my body, you know, when I'm giving and generous and open-hearted. My viscera are more at ease, there's a peace inside me and so on. Under the wrong conditions, we do become grasping and selfish and competitive. That's part of the toxicity of this culture, is that it induces people to be ways that goes contrary to their essential selves. Mm. I love this idea of the essential self and your chapter on healing principles, where you talk about the four A's and five compassions. Mm. I wonder if you could describe those for our readers. Sure. Well, were I to write the book again, I'd add a fifth. Okay. I'll tell you in a moment. But the five that I did identify here are not in any particular order, authenticity, which is, the, again, the connection to ourselves and the, and really the essence of trauma is that we get disconnected from ourselves, such as abuse or wartime or whatever, or whether the trauma is simply parents not recognizing the need of the child to be accepted, unconditionally loved and seen and heard, allowed to express, experience all their emotions. So it doesn't matter what the source of the trauma is, then there's agency. And agency means that I'm in charge of my life. I'm not in charge of all the circumstances of my life. Nobody can control the universe. But I'm in charge of how I respond. And for that I need consciousness. So that I'm not pulled by the puppet strings of my unconscious as determined by childhood trauma. Nor am I automatically following the advice or the dictates or the expectations of society, experts and so on. But I'm the one who exercises agency. That's the second one. Third one is healthy anger. Again, anger is not a luxury. Anger is wired into our brains. Not that we should be angry all the time, but that we should be able to deploy that anger when necessary. And healthy anger is simply a boundary defense. It says, you're in my space, get out. That's simple. All animals, all mammals share anger circuitry. Humans are not unique. If you want to know what anger is, intrude on the mothering of a mother bear. See what happens. You get a lot of healthy anger. The repression of anger, which happens a lot in our society, and particularly to women who are culturally untrained to push down their anger, because, I mean, that's not very nice, takes a heavy toll in illness. When you talk about depression, what's depression? To depress something means to push it down. That's what it means. What gets pushed down in depression are your emotions, particularly your anger. Why do you push it down? Because as a child, in order to survive, that's what it took. Because your healthy anger wasn't acceptable. This is not a conscious choice. But the child inevitably goes for the acceptance. By that, I mean the attachment relationship. Gives up the healthy anger. You're in disease. Because the role of healthy anger, as I pointed out, is a boundary defense. Which, if you think about it for a flash, second, is also the role of the immune system. It's to protect your boundaries. And given the biological unity of the brain's emotional systems with the immune system, 
the unshakable unity of mind and body. When we're repressing healthy anger, we're also diminishing the activity of our immune system. That's just a documented scientific fact. So healthy anger is very essential to healing. And then the fourth one is acceptance, which doesn't mean tolerance. It means actually refusal to be in denial, is to accept that this is a situation right now, this is what it looks like, I can't do anything about it. Which one's essential for the other four? Awareness. Awareness, okay. And I kind of took it for granted, and I didn't formally name it. So if I were to write the book again, I would have a paragraph or so on awareness. It's implied, and it's mentioned throughout the book, but I would have added it here. Yeah, that makes sense. I really love those. It's very clear Mm -hmm. how you've laid it out and the five compassions. I'm curious to know, what would you change about the way doctors are trained, giving all your research and work into trauma? How would you change the way that medical practitioners are trained these days? Well, first of all, I wouldn't traumatize them. Medical training is often very traumatizing. It's very harsh. A lot of doctors will tell you that. Secondly, I would train doctors that part of their professional job is to take care of themselves emotionally. Because if they don't, they're going to inflict that stress on their clients or they're going to burn out. Mm. In terms of the material that I would teach them, I would teach them some basic science. I'd point out to them that scientifically speaking, mind and body are inseparable. And I point out to them that therefore, when people come down with physical illnesses, that's often a manifestation of lifelong emotional processes. It has been documented. And the science of it is very clear. So that stress and trauma have a lot to do with chronic physical illness. The average physician doesn't get a single lecture on the relationship of stress and physical illness. They haven't got a clue. Even though, whether in rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis, there have been oodles of studies correlating stress and trauma to these conditions. It's unbelievable. The gap between the science and the practices, so vast, doesn't hear a single lecture on trauma and its impacts. Even though trauma is scientifically shown to be the major trigger for addiction, for mental health conditions, for physical health conditions as well. It's a major contributor. Women with severe PTSD have doubled the risk of ovarian cancer. Men sexually abused as children have tripled the rate of heart attacks. People traumatized have much higher rates of migraine headaches. These facts completely elude medical education, even though the physiological links have been worked out. Mm. So I would train doctors in the science of stress and trauma. That's what I would do. And its clinical implications. It would be so valuable. I grew up in a family of doctors, so I had to learn to understand their language, even if I didn't properly speak it. And this notion of the trauma that they went through in training, but also having that awareness with patients would be so valuable from the, you know, the conversations that I just listened to. That's right. This isn't theoretical. Because if somebody comes in with rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis, if I can talk to them about how stress, which is induced by traumatic imprints in childhood, how those stresses in adult life create the conditions for their flare-ups, if they learn to investigate what stresses did I generate for myself, prior to my flare-up, that can actually avoid flare-ups. They actually can, and we're talking about clinical implications here, not clinical applications, not just theory. People don't have to suffer the way they do. They don't take medication for the rest of their lives. They don't, if they learn how to deal with the stresses. Mm. And so, given that the only change we have any control over is that that we can change within ourselves, 
Yeah. What do you think is our potential to transform our culture and to heal some of this toxicity? Well, I think the potential is tremendous. It would take a lot of people waking up and getting together to do something about it, which is the unpredictable variable. But I do think that just the success of my books and the success of other books about trauma and, and so on, it, it does indicate something that people are waking up to start to ask questions and they're looking for answers. So that's far from an advanced process. The medical institutions, the legal institutions, the political institutions, they are very good at resisting this kind of information and excluding it and invalidating it. Not even validating it, just not acting on it. And that's going to continue for a long time. But I think the more people wake up and the more conversation there's about this, and also just the more people spontaneously realize that the way we're living just isn't working for us as human beings. I think transformation is possible. I'm not making any predictions. It's nice to know it's there, though. So I'm interested to know where you find hope. It's not a question of hope. It's a possibility that I see. Hope is that something will happen in the future. Well, okay. It's not very useful. It's not very useful to have hope. But it's very useful to see the possibilities. And the possibilities are inherent in the present. So that I can today address the possibility that if people see the truth, they'll want to listen to it. They'll want to embrace it. That's a possibility right now. That is implication for the future. So it's not that I'm hoping something will happen in the future. It's that I see the possibilities inherent in the present, even in the face of all the difficulties. That's an exciting prospect too. I was fascinated with you talking about psychedelics and the role in some of this. Here in Australia, everything's still illegal. Mm -hmm even though there are academics working on material. And I've just commissioned an essay about psychedelics for our magazine, which I'm super excited about. The writers going mm. into connection with nature is the angle mm. that she took with it. But I'm mm. interested in what you've seen and learned and experienced with psychedelics in terms of healing. I've heard it described as a mountain that's been skied on all day and then there's a dusting of snow that just covers over those tracks and I can start fresh. I'm interested to know your thoughts on psychedelics and healing of trauma. Yeah. Well, I'm not a psychedelic evangelist. I mean, I don't think psychedelics are going to save the world or save medicine or save mental health. But I think they're a powerful modality that we are remiss to ignore. As psychedelic experiences myself, as I describe in this book, also done a lot of work as a healer with psychedelics. I've seen people recover from addictions, serious addictions. I've seen them much better with chronic illness. I've seen them transform their personal lives, their relationships. I've seen some people achieve some spiritual realizations that have been very important in their lives, specifically when it comes to trauma. There are possibilities inherent in psychedelic work that simply are not available in Western medicine. I mean, they're not even remotely available. So whether the substance is MDMA or ayahuasca or mushrooms, there's tremendous potential in them. And I've seen that potential realized. So. The illegality of these substances and the sheer difficulty of even getting research projects approved just speaks to the blind stupidity and prejudice of the authority. It says nothing about the actual reality because these substances used in a right way are absolutely safe. In fact, a lot safer than most of the psychiatric medications doled out every day to millions of people. And it's not that I'm against psychiatric medications. They can be helpful. I've prescribed them myself. Occasionally, I've taken them myself. But in terms of long-term safety, there's no comparison. 
So what is the bigger reluctance here? It's utter ignorance. Mm. Yeah, there is potential there. I do hope that things change that way in Australia. Before there was a bit of internet instability, you were telling me about the book that you're writing with your son, the next one. Can you tell me again about that, please? Oh, yeah, it's based on a workshop that we do. Uh, it's called Hello Again, A Fresh Start for Adult Children and Their Parents. Oh, wow. Yeah, and um, if anyone wants to see it, just check out YouTube 2016, Gabor and Daniel Mate. We gave a talk about it. The first time we did it, we did this public talk, and even on stage, we're fighting with each other, so it's a perfect <laughs> introduction, but it's a wonderful workshop. We're going to do it in New York in just a few weeks, and then in Vancouver again in November. And we're going to have a podcast based on it because we want to collect stories and people's input. So we'll be called Hello Again Podcast, and that'll be our next book. Oh, that's exciting. My last question for you, Dr. Mate, is what is your vision for the world? What do you want to see? Well, it has to do with what I said about possibility. I mean, I think we have the possibility of living a very healthy, sane life that's not alienated from nature, that's not alienated from our own true nature that's connected to other people, that isn't based on ideas of greed and selfishness, competition. We have that potential. That sounds wonderful. Thank you for joining us, listening to the Dumbo Feather podcast. That was me, Kirsty, in conversation with Dr. Gabor Mate. Dr. Mate's latest book is The Myth of Normal, and it's available from your favourite indie bookseller. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you, and have a great day. Mm-hmm.